the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Wednesday, November 29th. Jimmy Sangenberger back here with you and with you all week from 3 to 4. News Talk 710-KNUS. And then rounding it all off with the Jimmy Sangenberger Show from 6 to 9 this Saturday morning. News Talk 710-KNUS, our telephone number. Once we open up the lines in the next segment, is 303-696-1971. You can also text into the show on the 710-KNUS app on your smartphone. Name in town, name in town, if you wish to text in, please. And, of course, you can email me, 247-365. One way to do that, 710knus.com. Just go to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show page. And then, of course, there's my website, jimmysangenberger.com. Keep in mind, there's no A, I, or U in Sangenberger. It's all E's all the time. Once you know that, Sangenberger is easy. Lots that we're going to dive into and talk about today, but I want to get right to our guest because something extraordinarily fascinating happened in the last couple of weeks when a free market, Austrian-style economist-minded politician won the presidency in Argentina. That is to say, a really small government guy who loves the likes of Milton Friedman and Ludwig von Mises, among other noted free market economists. And he won in socialist Argentina, decisively enough, too, where his opponent conceded right away and acknowledged that he would be the next president, that Javier Millet would be the next president. Now we hear, though, in the press, especially with other so-called populist victories in other countries, such as El Salvador, Italy, and now in the Netherlands in the last day or two, where you have these so-called populist victories. Interesting, though, hearing a very limited government free market guy being described as a populist because generally speaking you often you don't often see populists championing let's slash the government in these extraordinary ways but alas that is Millet. and there was a fascinating piece last week put out at law and liberty lawliberty.org by the senior fellow a senior fellow at the Liberty Fund, G. Patrick Lynch, that I really wanted to discuss on the program, misunderstanding Millet, really diving in to how the media is, charitably we could say, getting it wrong on Javier Millet and what is happening in Argentina. Very pleased to be joined now, taking some time today, by... G. Patrick Lynch, who joins me now again from Liberty Fund. Good afternoon, Pat. Welcome to the show. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. It's good to have you on. I'm glad we could chat, especially because when I see 
anybody anywhere in the world being elected president of a country who is as free market a guy, libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, Austrian, whatever term you want to use, that's this guy. It's kind of mind-blowing, especially when you think about socialist Argentina. Big picture, and then we'll dive in. What's going on here? Well, I think what's going on um, is that after 80 years of failed government policy that was designed primarily to create uh, a large welfare state, empower public sector unions, uh, shrink uh, its global impact, and to try to make the economy a managed, planned economy uh, using both fiscal policy and monetary policy, the country has been suffering from inflation rates that are double to triple digits on a, on a regular basis now for decades. And the wealth destruction that's gone on uh, is is unbelievable. It, it's, I, I think it's one of the greatest failed states of our lifetime. I mean, you're talking about a governance structure that has taken a wealthy country, a country that has got immense natural resources, got a high level of education, uh, and was primarily middle class and actually – um, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. If, if you were an immigrant in Europe in the 1890s, 19, early 1900s, and you were choosing where to go, the United States or Argentina, it was a coin toss because Argentina was actually wealthier at that point than the United States was. So this was a country that at one point was on a trajectory to become a highly successful uh, political and economic system. But what happened was uh, under Juan Perón, who people may know through the, the, the musical Evita, um, Peronism started, which was essentially a kind of a right-wing form of uh, economic nationalism and, and, and a large political structure, and it, it destroyed the wealth of the country. Um, so that reaction, that destruction, had a profound effect on young people. And Millet's po- popularity among the young is very high. It, the young carried him to this victory, um, which is a really, really interesting point. Uh, particularly in contrast to a lot of what's going on in, in the U.S. and elsewhere, because they, they don't see any future. So he he won basically through the th- the situation being so dire that people were willing to take a chance on some policies that frankly sound a little radical to, to mainstream economists, but also to the mainstream media. Let's talk for a moment about who Javier Millet is, because he is an extraordinarily interesting guy i mean i don't know how many people in politics have cloned dogs uh let alone um have the kind of background i mean he he also is fascinating i was reading up on how back in september he traveled to new york city to meet with a number of hasidic jewish leaders back again september of this year during his campaign for president of argentina and he's catholic uh it, it it's fascinating when you look at who this guy is so tell us more about javier millet so javier millet actually was trained by an economist who i I know personally, uh, uh, his name was uh, Elizabeth Negus Lynch. And uh, the Negus Lynch is a very strong free market Austrian uh, political economist. Uh, and his training had a profound impact on him, but he's also a, a rather eccentric figure, but a very, a very dynamic, charismatic guy. And he's made his career up to this point being uh, a, largely being a political commentator. Um, and uh, for attacking the existing state structure, the bureaucracy, but especially for attacking the, the, the Argentine Central Bank. Um, he's, uh, he's very politically savvy. Um, and if you watch videos, you, all you have to do is go to Twitter, go to YouTube, type in his name, and you will see uh, 
obviously very well executed videos, some a lot of really good interviews with with uh, with folks in the Argentine press. And the thing about it is, is they all challenge him on his ideas, but it comes back to the same thing. The central bank in Argentina has been printing pesos nonstop for basically 30 or 40 years. It just has not stopped. And his main takeaway is that that, that economy, that, that structure, the central bank is stealing people's money through inflation. And it's been extremely effective and very, it has great resonance in Argentina where people can see this link. So it gave him an opportunity to get traction. And he's used that traction very effectively. The interesting thing about the Jewish piece, he's actually now saying he's going to convert to Judaism. Oh, is he? Which is, yes, he is. And I, and I think there's a strategic reason for it. Argentina has one of the largest Jewish populations in, in Latin America. Does it really? Okay. And yeah, and, and I think it also, it, it also just fits his personality, um, you know, where he's, he's trying to, 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 to make people, I think, a little, a little, make it a little difficult to pin him down on anything. So his running mate is a much more conservative woman. Um, who is Catholic. And actually, Argentina is, is not a very conservative, conservative society, even though it has got high levels of identified Catholicism. Church um, attendance is fairly low, particularly throughout the southern cone. It's, it's very low. As, as you move further north in, in Central and South America, it, it gets more Catholic and more religious. But if you move further south, it's much more secular. And yeah. I think that move to Judaism is, is strategic hmm. and political. He's, he's, an, he's an eccentric guy. As, as you said, he cloned his dogs. He, he, his first dog, Conan, died. Um, and then he, he cloned four more from that dog, and he named three of them after his favorite economists, Milton Friedman, Murray Rothbard, and Robert Lucas. Um, and I don't know what he named the fourth one. I have, I have to take a minute to look that up. But he's he's a very, very unusual guy. I'm sure you know he traveled – he campaigned with a chainsaw, mm-hmm. um, and he campaigned with the chainsaw with the symbolism being that he was going to chop – he was going to cut – use the chainsaw to cut the bureaucracy and cut the size of the state. Yeah. So it's a it's a really really it's now, a very very magnetic personality. It's it's fascinating to me to think about. Okay, so Argentina 100 years ago was the sixth wealthiest country in the entire world. Now it is the 66th wealthiest country in the entire world, dropping dramatically below just below Mexico and just above Russia. So that tells you about that decline. So to hear you talk about Pat Lynch, to hear you talk about a guy elected president in Argentina who campaigned on, I am going to cut the state, which means reducing the welfare programs that are being, uh, that are throwing all sorts of goodie bags out there, at least theoretically, that actually resonated with people. Whereas here in the United States, we can't really fathom of that kind of boldness since, say, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, it, it's been well. Certainly, the U.S. government has been handing out money. I mean, well before COVID, but certainly through COVID and since then, in large bags. Uh, and I think with Argentina, what what what's happened is you've got two things. The first is that the inflation, so the inflation rate's been in excess of a hundred percent for several years. Now you have to take a minute to let that let that soak in, right? One hundred percent. And let, let, me, let me give you an example of how bad it is. If you want to buy a house in, and this is not a new thing, if you want to buy a house in Argentina, it is not sold or priced in pesos. It's sold and priced in U.S. dollars. And in order to purchase, there are no loans. You cannot get a loan for a home because how can you possibly structure a loan when interest rates are 100, when, when inflation is at 100%? You can't. So in order to purchase a home, you have to show up at the closing with U.S. dollars to pay the purchase price. That's how homes are exchanged. Okay. Wow. 
Wow. There's the, the, the effect of prices for consumers is devastating. The effect of people on fixed salaries is devastating. So finally, it took years and years and years, but people could finally see the takeaway from profligate central bank policy. Hyperinflation is a technical term, but 100% is certainly hyper enough for me. And then the government spending that was fueling this and not ameliorating the problem helped young people realize that they needed to take a different path if they were going to have a future in that country. And Mm. And I, I think that it's a I think it's a bold it's a bold reaction against the kinds of policies that are being pursued in a lot of the rest of the developing and developed yeah. world. So I, I, it's it's remarkable and it's generational. I think that's pretty striking from an American standpoint, where we look at millennials and Generation Z as being more left wing, as aspiring more towards socialism. Now, I would actually debate that at least with the millennial generation, especially as my generation and my millennial gets older. But nevertheless, there is at least this reputation for generations Y and Z being that kind of left wing. And then you go into Argentina and it is very different because they have lived under this. Their parents lived under this. Their grandparents lived under this. And this debt run amok has really gotten to them as we can't live like this any longer. Let's make a radical change. Yeah, and 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 it and it's something that I think is 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 powerful in the possibility, and and we I hope we get a chance to talk a little bit about the media reaction to him because yes, the media will. reaction has, has been so horrible. Uh, is that you know that another that if if he can be somewhat successful in cutting the size of the state and getting the the monetary piece under control and the policy that he wants to do that is by dollarizing the economy. If he can pull that off, it's an example of free market limited government economics that's successful. And there's already an example of that in South America, Chile, which yes. the media do not like. And so if you have two examples of this, then all of a sudden it's hard to refute. Precisely. So I, I think that there's a lot of built-in opposition to this being successful or even getting a chance to try the experiment. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of fear that it, that it could at least be somewhat effective. And, and it's, 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 taken, it's taken a crisis to have people return to the right policies. And sometimes you need a crisis in order to have these things happen. We'll get to, in a moment, the question of the media and how they've handled this. G. Patrick Lynch, our guest from the Liberty Fund. But you write in your piece at lawliberty.org, misunderstanding Millet, quote, he faces nearly intractable political challenges in achieving even a small percentage of his legislative agenda. And yet, if he, again, Millet, can achieve one goal, he might allow Argentina to start down a different path. Two-part question here. One, how likely is it for Millet to even get much, if any, of his agenda through? And number two, if, let's say, he's not able to be very successful in that and things continue in this slide and he gets blamed for it. What about that? Is that is there a possibility that this could flub? And then it's oh, we tried that experiment with smaller government in Latin America, and people can point to Chile. We ignore that. This one failed. What do you think? Think. Well, I, I so first of all, I think it, with regard. Let me answer them in, in the order you asked them. So it depends on what he what he can get done. Um. Two nights ago, I had a conversation with someone who uh, is involved with the educational reform piece in his new government, 
um, who I will not name, but is basically writing the legislation that they're going to introduce in, a, in an extraordinary session that he's going to call uh, right after his inauguration. Um, and there's a lot of, I wouldn't say concern, but there's a lot of realism about the challenges that they face. And those challenges are twofold. One is one is, is one that you identified, which is, you know, what if you don't get enough of it passed to give it a legitimate shot, really? And that there are a lot of entrenched interests. There are a lot of government interests. There are public sector unions. There are private sector interests. When you've got an economy like the Argentine economy where, where favorites are played, where the state picks who the winners and the losers are, the winners want to protect their interests. And the public sector unions do not want to be cut, and the, the, the bureaucracies do not want to be cut. So there will be opposition. I think the hope is that because his support is so young, that they will mobilize themselves in opposition and support of his policies and be able to get some of this stuff done. I, I, you know, the, the example that I mentioned is Ireland, because that's the one Millet uses. So Millet points to Ireland, uh, or he pointed to Ireland throughout the campaign saying, look, this is what I want to do. And Ireland uh, had a much simpler task, although they were they still face a lot of challenges in terms of cutting the size of the state and cutting their tax policies and you know freeing up the economy. I think it depends on how much he can get done, honestly, and, and what he can achieve through those changes to determine whether or not he can be successful. If he fails, will he be labeled as a failure from the right? Probably, but he the, the left has already failed. I, I, the, the key takeaway yeah. from, from this election is that this is an example where left-wing politics was an abject failure. That I don't think you can call Peronism anything but left-wing politics, economic management by the government, large state economic management, and it's been a miserable failure that people have soundly rejected. Um, and no matter what the next step is, I don't think that's going to be after Milea. Whatever he whatever he can do, I don't think the next step is return to, is a return to Peronism, uh, unless it's completely reconceived. So I, I don't – I mean I think everyone I've spoken to down there is very realistic that they don't think he's going to get a ton of uh, everything he wants. But the key thing is can he move the economy in a direction where he can stabilize mm. the monetary peace and get some of the fiscal reforms and some of the policy reforms, and then people can start to see some changes, and that might empower him to do a little bit more. If he could get the country dollarized by the end of his term, it would be – he would be a hero. And I don't mean that just normatively. I mean, just ending 100 percent inflation by linking Absolutely. it to the dollar would be more yes. than sufficient so to, to, to help. It. What's extraordinary as we have our conversation, G. Patrick Lynch, again, our guest senior fellow at the Liberty Fund, is that everything that you are sharing with me sounds free market, sounds libertarian, sounds like somebody who was focused on shrinking the size, scope, breadth, and depth of government and cutting, slashing, spending, and making dramatic changes in that regard, free market. It does not sound like what you hear from much of the mainstream press in America where they're like, oh, he's a far-right populist. He's the Trump of Argentina. And the list goes on with that kind of rhetoric. This is a guy who's identified serious economic failures within Argentina and has specific policy prescriptions rooted in limited government, rooted in Austrian economics in particular, to address it. There's nothing Trumpian about that except he's very clear on where he stands and he's willing to go out on a limb for his beliefs. 
I think you've nailed it right on the head. There, there, there's nothing Trumpian in it. Well, I, I would add one more thing. Apparently, Trump congratulated him after he won, uh, which is the, the no. I, I mean, yeah, I know it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, I, I, that pretty much tars and feathers him right away. Trumpian, <laughs> right? Uh, it, 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 it's 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 amazing to me how intellectually vacuous the mainstream media currently is, um, because he's being lumped in with people like. Meloni of Italy, uh, Bukele and, our, and El Salvador, when the context in all three of those countries are very different, the policy interests of those three leaders are all extremely different. The, the key thing that links them all together is though they don't adopt the sort of mushy left-wing politics that the mainstream media would like people to follow. So in, in Mule's case, the notion that you could abolish central banking, that you could you could essentially link, he, he's not even advocating for the gold standard, he's advocating for dollarizing the economy, which in which the U.S. dollar would become the standard currency of Argentina. Now, what that would effectively do is end the, the money printing and the, the, the domestic money printing and, and the, the hyperinflation that's currently hitting the country. Uh, can he do it? Does it? Do they have the, the money to be able to do it? It's not clear at this point, and it's not really clear how that transition would occur, but that's not a right-wing policy. I mean, that is, as you just said, it's a it's a it's a radical libertarian Austrian economics policy. Uh, you could talk about it from the standpoint of not having a, a local currency because that currency has been mismanaged. But that has nothing to do with right or left wing politics. Um, you know, we talked about his his dog cloning and his conversion to Judaism. This is not a hard right. He is pro-life. But I mean, if someone's pro-life makes them far right, then I think the media needs to be very clear about that. And, you know, a lot of us. Are, are far right, uh, even though we don't necessarily feel that way. So the language that's being used is incredibly sloppy. It's not descriptive at all, and it doesn't really create the opportunity to debate the policies. I mean, if you if you just tar and feather someone with a name, you, you might as well say you've given up the game because in order to, to really inform your readers, you've got to be able to provide people with policy as you do in your show. So that this is this is where I think the media is showing itself again to be out in touch with the times, out yeah. in touch with the current market for demand for information. Which is exactly why I wanted to have you on the program. G. Patrick Lynch with the Liberty Fund, Misunderstanding Millet. We'll talk down again down the line, and I want to share more with folks uh, at a future point about Liberty Fund and the work you guys do as well. Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Jimmy, thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Once again, G. Patrick Lynch joining us on the program. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, what are your thoughts? 303-696-1971 is our telephone number to join in to the program. And let me tell you, this is striking. This is surprising. This is something different down there in Argentina. What lessons do you think we can extrapolate from that for here in the United States? Does it say something could be good? For the younger generations, could there be hope here in America, too? Give us a call. Be right back on 710 KNUS. Rockin' and rolling back. Jimmy Sangenberger here with you. News Talk 710 KNUS. Fascinating conversation with G. Patrick Lynch of the Liberty Fund. Talking about the eccentric new president of Argentina. Quite a guy. Javier Millet. And this is a guy who genuinely is about as small government as you could get. Let's dollarize the economy because over 100% inflation is unacceptable from the constant flow of money that's being printed. 
and all the debt being incurred and debt lifestyle and all the social welfare programs and everything else that goes along with it to the point where the younger generation is what is spurring victory here for the small government guy who wants to cut social welfare programs in a Latin American socialist country. 303-696-1971. What do you think it would take for the United States to adopt something like that, to actually head in that direction? I don't mean, you know, Trump sort of at the margins, uh, and that's not to uh, belittle some of the things that he did with cutting government back in his administration, but it grew under his administration, particularly because of COVID. I'm talking about real substantial slashes in social welfare programs and the rest. What would it take to get there? Is it possible that the younger generations of Americans, millennials, Gen Z, could come on board with this policy prescription smaller government and and really in a in a bold and brash way like Millet is trying to pursue i look at where we are now as a country and see our continued progression the the progress they say is being made into bigger government which Frankly, I know others say this. I've said it since I heard before I heard others say it. But it is a regression, not a progression. It is the fact that these are regressive statists who want to grow government, grow our reliance on government, grow our dependence on government, grow the power, influence, and control of government in our day-to-day lives. That is regressive, not progressive. If you think about it, true, a true progressive ideology is liberty. It's what the Founding Fathers brought with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The idea that the purpose of government is to protect the rights of the individual, not to provide, not to control, not to dictate, not to give out. we've gone astray from that. Can we go back to that? Can we see something of a Malay-style political economic revolution here in the USA? Especially among younger people. 303-696-1971. What will it take to get to that point? I also found it instructive talking with our guest about the media, and of course the narratives that they're pulling, oh, these populists are all Trumpian in their way and this and that, and they're all different, unique individuals, each country from Argentina to El Salvador to the Netherlands, they all have different issues, some overlapping issues, but different problems and different concerns and different social motivations that are going on in their countries. And so it is very simplistic, to put it mildly, to do just that. To 
slap a little label on Millet, and then most Americans will be like, oh, shoot, look at what's happening down in Argentina. They have a Trump now. That's not accurate. That's not right. But, of course, that's the way that the media operates, is it not? I am very encouraged to see somebody like Millet elected down there. I mean, it's going to be a remarkable future to to watch unfold from Argentina. We'll see what he's able to do in that country. And maybe, just maybe, something big and dramatic would happen. Will happen. We shall indeed see. Speaking of big government, little story from the Wall Street Journal editorial page and editorial entitled car dealers to biden evs aren't selling of course talking about electric vehicles because the biden administration is trying to shove evs down the throats of everyday americans while auto dealers are finally starting to speak up writing in a letter to president biden that while there are Many excellent battery electric vehicles available for consumers to purchase. Electric vehicle demand today is not keeping up with the large influx of BEVs arriving at our dealerships prompted by the current regulations. In other words, they're sitting on the sidelines. People aren't buying them. BEVs are stacking up on our lots. Dealers have a 103-day supply of EVs compared to 56 days for all cars, the journal writes. It takes them on average 65 days to sell an EV, about twice as long as for gas-powered cars. EV sales are slowing through manufacturers, though manufacturers have slashed prices and increased discounts. Consumers paid an average $50,683 for an EV in September compared to $65,000 a year ago. But the dealers are saying that it was the early adopters who rushed at that price. Now, even though you are at a much uh, lower price of $15,000 below that of a year ago, they're not buying them. For example, many apartment renters also don't have garages for home charging. And public charging networks are spotty with one in four not functional, according to one study. And, of course, they're concerned about the distance, the range that the vehicles can go. So the dealers are calling on the Biden administration to, quote, tap the brakes on its proposed tailpipe emissions rules that would effectively mandate that EVs comprise two-thirds of car sales by 2032. If you do the math, we are about to get to 2024. That's, what, eight years? In eight years? Automakers might meet the government's quotas in left-wing cities where Teslas are a political fashion statement, the journal writes, but price and convenience matter more elsewhere. And not only that, there's a study from Berkeley's Energy Institute at Haas at the University of California, Berkeley, that finds a strong and enduring correlation between political ideology and U.S. EV adoption. 
About half of EVs registered as of last year were to the 10% most Democratic counties and about one-third to the top 5%, suggesting it may be harder than previously believed to reach high levels of U.S. EV adoption. And folks listening to this radio station are saying, yeah, and we knew it. We told you we were saying it. But the government didn't listen. The big government, the all-knowing, all-powerful federal government and state government here in Colorado haven't been listening and been trying to shove this all down our throats. And Americans are saying, we can't afford it. We don't want it. The tech isn't there. And hopefully we don't need a Javier Millet to stop that. But we just might need it. Who could that be? I don't know. But we definitely can see that from Argentina to America, big government consistently fails. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. You're listening to News Talk 710 KNUS. You want to join into the conversation, text in on the 710 KNUS app on your smartphone or call in 303-696-1971. When we come back, what do I have in common with Mayor Mike Johnston of Denver? That's next. Stay with us. Final segment coming back to the king of the blues himself. May he rest in peace, B.B. King. He came out with a Christmas album a number of years back in the early 2000s. This is from that little Christmas celebration. The album was a Christmas celebration of hope. Gotta li- love having a little blues in your bluesified Christmas. Good to be with you, as always, all week here from 3 until 4. So, ladies and gentlemen, what is it that Denver Mayor Mike Johnston has in common with Jimmy Sangenberger. We both had our cars stolen more than once. Here is Fox 31. Yeah, that was all part of the campaign. Remember when the, he campaigned for the top job here at a city county building? He said he was going to try to do something about uh, the stolen car crisis. And, and this is what has happened now. He becomes a victim himself. Here's what's happening out here right now. And this is the very latest. The mayor and his office said that they weren't going to say what the car was or uh, what make it was. They said they want to do that out of the concerns about the safety and security uh, for the mayor and his family. But the car crisis now, I mean, it's going crazy. The mayor, about five years or so ago, had another car that was ripped off. And at that time, he tweeted in 2017 that, in fact, the car was ripped off. He said, help, please, my car's been ripped off by, by somebody over on the east side, by a Home Depot over on 35th and Quebec. But the numbers just continue to grow. 9,000, almost 9,000 cars here ripped off so far this year here in Denver. That's 28 per day. And the mayor said during that campaign he was going to form a task force and try to do something about it. And the Denver police, they've been trying to do something about it, but the cars just keep going, you know, going, going, going each and every day, stolen one right after another. And now the mayor's car. He did get the car back. The mayor and his family got their car back. No word on what condition uh, it was in, however, and no word as of yet on any arrest. But uh, yeah, it really hits home here at the city and county building when the mayor's car is ripped off. Yeah. Huh. 
Although I, I guess his first one, it was said, was 2017. Uh, for me, I had just a couple years uh, distance. My, I had a, a car stolen in 2020 in the summer from my complex in Aurora. And then it was stolen from the auto body shop. Burst right through the gate weeks later after it had been recovered. And then last November of last year, I was at the Arapahoe County Republican Party's election night shindig at the Stampede in Aurora. And lo and behold, stolen again. Well, different car. So three-time victim. He's a two-time victim. I guess I beat him. Do you really want to be beaten? <laughs> Somebody with that kind of metric, though? But here's the thing. According to his press secretary, quote, Mayor Johnston's car was stolen about a month ago, and it has since been recovered. But to protect the safety of Mayor Johnston and his family, we can't share where it happened. Now, at Govitz the Problem on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and my thanks to Alexa and Littleton for sending these tweets my way, noted this. So it gets worse. The Denver mayor had his car stolen and then decided he wouldn't even tell the people of Denver that his car was stolen. Yeah, why are we just finding this out a month later? A curious question. He also asks on X, formerly known as Twitter, should at Mike Johnston CO be criminally prosecuted for any crimes that are committed against his stolen vehicle? After all, that's what Mike Johnston's Democrat Party wants to do with firearms. A, a fair question. A couple of fair questions here. But it is quite striking. Not even the mayor of Denver can avoid having his car stolen in a, a second time. Ah, here, text coming in just now. Brian in Denver. An FBI agent was just carjacked in D.C. When will these Democrat cities wake up? That's a good question. Well, here's the thing, though. There's not actually chaos going on in these Democrat cities. It's just that the right wing is targeting Democrat cities, particularly if they are led by mayors of color. At least that's what's being said by Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson. Um, everyone knows that the right-wing extremism in this country has targeted democratically ran cities. And quite frankly, uh, they've been very intentional about going after democratically ran cities that are led by people of color. And their whole motivation is to create disruption and chaos because that's what this, that particular party has been about. For the extremism in this country to use people as political tools to settle political scores for something that happened 400 years ago. They're still mad that a black man is free in this country. What? Okay, so he was talking about the transporting of migrants from the southern border up to, and, and Republic, certain Republican states down south, up to Democrat-run cities. That's what he was talking about. And he's saying there that... The right is unhappy that slavery ended. He even said in another part of that clip, I spliced it a little bit to shorten it down, but 
he even said that they haven't accepted that the Civil War is over. The re- they haven't accepted the results of the Civil War. What? What is he? What? That's the mayor of Chicago. Can't even take him seriously. He can't even take himself seriously with the kinds of things that he's saying. So it's not that Democrat-run cities are all messed up. It's just that it's racism from the right that's pointing to these messed up Democrat cities and responsible for the messed up Democrat cities. Oh, my goodness. Ah, and I like this tweet from Stephen Littleton, or text, rather, on the 710K and US app. Jimmy, karma apparently does visit Democrats. <laughs> I need to get that rib shot button that Stefan used to have. That's what I need for some of the things we've been doing this segment. And going back to Millet and that discussion earlier, a text that I missed, and it kind of ties in with the discussion about Democrat-run cities, too. Jimmy. But if government didn't exist, who would hire all the stupid people? (laughs) Okay, there are some smart people who work in government. Some. (laughs) Some. Some. Oh, my goodness. But, yes, big government is the place where you just go ahead and you hire all sorts of people and give them jobs. And remember, Louis Armstrong had a great song back in, was it the, the late 30s? WPA about the Works Progress Administration, and it was just satirizing how you were getting paid to sit around and be lazy, basically, during the Great Depression. And that was that was one of Louis Armstrong's a really great song. If you're not familiar with it, go check it out. WPA is the name of the song. But if Louis Armstrong was recognizing that nearly 100 years ago, by the way, 90 something years ago then we should all be able to recognize that. I don't know what kind of world that we are living in, but whatever it is, we're living in it. And that's for darn sure. And I I just, I look at what's happening in Argentina and I say maybe there's cause for hope here in America. Maybe there is cause for hope for our own country. God willing, there is. One more thing, speaking of the kind of inflationary dynamics, and thank goodness we do not have the kind of inflation even remotely that they have in Argentina, but from Fox Business. All right, well, the cost of living squeeze, how far does your money go? Well, it requires $119.27 to buy the same household goods and services as you could with just $100 before the pandemic. Let's take a look at some of the prices under President Biden. You can see here natural gas, that's up 29%. Groceries up 25%. Those used cars higher in price by 35%. Electricity up 25%. Of course, the troubling trend here, guys, these are all necessities. They're all necessities. And now for every hundred dollars you have to spend on those necessities, you're spending an additional or back then you're spending an additional twenty dollars now. And that adds up. That is Bidenomics, which is just a, a weaker version, shall we say, a lesser version of Argentina's economy for the last 80 years. 
Let there be a new hope, please. And it is us, it is we, the people, who must provide that hope. That is it for me today. Back in the saddle the next couple of days from 3 to 4, Saturday morning then 6 to 9. Be sure to tune in then. See you tomorrow. And as always, may God bless America. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.